0: this book, The Hindu Way of Awakening, Its Revelations and Its Symbols, An Essential View of Religion by Swami Kriyananda. I failed to give you in advance any warning about how much you should read, but we're doing eight classes on this book, so it comes somewhere between 40 and 50 pages a week, which may seem like a lot, but the pages are not that big, (laughs) and the text is not nearly as dense as the Gita. And just decided that we couldn't spend forever on it. So that was a good period of time. Um, I'm going to go through chapter four tonight. So I don't know how prepared you are one way or another, but we'll just start in. And then just so you'll know, for the, fo- for the next class, it's five, six, and seven for the class afterwards. I'll send out something in the email, but forgive me, I didn't. Um, this book is sentimentally interesting to me because it was because of this book that I started doing these book um, study classes with Swami. Because when this book came out in 1998, Rick reminds me, I was reading it and I was struggling to understand it. And uh, it occurred to me that I bet a lot of people were struggling to understand it. And it was such a good book that I thought it would be beneficial if we worked on it together. So that was what started me Doing what has now been these eight or nine years of running through a great many of Swami Kriyananda's books, which has just been wonderful, and he keeps writing. So the only one that I hadn't done yet was, uh, well, that's not entirely true, but I have never done Out of the Labyrinth, which I've, Swamiji considers to be one of his most important books. But after I did uh, Hope for a Better World, which has a sort of similar theme, which is taking on Western philosophy and trying to reconcile it with Sanatana Dharma. I sort of felt I'd done enough of that. Hope for a better world and God is for everyone. We're a little bit the same way. And so I put it aside, but um, I think I may go back to it before too long. So, um, just starting with this book, um, Swamiji, you know, very, very often when uh, we start trying to express to people whether, you know, what our spiritual path is, meaning the path of self-realization is presented by Master. People almost always say, oh, Buddhism, just like that. And um, you sort of say, well, sort of Buddhist, not quite. And it's interesting to me that in the introduction to this book, Swamiji says part of the reason he's writing this is because Hinduism has been so difficult for uh, those who make these compendiums and especially for Westerners to grasp that... It, 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 it often isn't really understood or respected, as he puts it, for its place as a world religion. People pick up India by picking up Buddhism, is how he said. Because Buddhism seems easier. It fits our concept of a religion better. It was started by one identifiable person and even bears his name. And uh, th- that it seems to have a starting point. And it's simple. It's simple to grasp what it's about. When you look at Hinduism... You see this plethora of confusing realities, and there's just so many un- unbelievably large number of incomprehensible things going on in Hinduism. the first time we went to India and just saw you know the gods and the goddesses and the and, and in the Western mind, you have all these sort of simple explanations, like we were somewhere, and it was supposed to be a celebration of Durga. Durga's a a, a manifestation of Divine Mother. And she, I mean, she's confusing enough. She has six arms. She rides on a lion. Things like this that are not, the, the mind doesn't immediately know what to do with it. And we were at this big Durga Puja, as it's called, a worship of Durga. And we were invited to come onto the stage of this very large temple where there were some thousands of people, we meaning the group of Americans that I was traveling with, and chant to lead chanting. And so we were up there, and we're chanting, and we think we're in a a ceremony to Durga, but uh, but as it happens, the woman who was leading the chant was uh, chanting his name, Durga, but she kept singing Shiva chants. And then after we were done, we sort of turned around, and there was this huge image of Shiva, who's the god of renunciation and uh, the destruction of uh, ignorance. I mean, all these things we'll talk about in the next weeks. And it was sort of like, but we thought this was a Durga event, and now they're Shiva. And, and even we, who were relatively well-schooled in the whole thing, just found it completely incomprehensible. And who's the, who's the most important? Which one is the one you're supposed to? Who's the, who's the big guy? Who's the boss? Who's really in charge? I mean, all these Western ideas come to mind. Nobody of the Indian audience seemed the slightest bit concerned by what to us seemed an impossible contradiction. But it was just the beginning of our that was our first year, the beginning of our initiation into the mysteries of India. But Swamiji explains that the, the difficulty with Buddhism is that, as, as the representative of the Indian religion, is that it just simply isn't complete. Especially because since Buddha, as Swami describes him, was a reformer, as he puts it, very similar to Martin Luther in relationship to the Catholic Church. Similar in the sense, in both cases, that the original element kept going. It wasn't obliterated by the reform. It's just that you ended up with sort of two branches of, of what started out to be the same tree. But, but because Buddha was a reformer, he made, had a certain emphasis to his teaching. And one of the things that Buddha emphasized, because he came to correct was a too passive attitude on the part of people in thinking that God was going to do everything for them. And when a great teacher comes, he has the capacity to reiterate everything that every other great master has presented because if one is self-realized, as the Buddha was, if one is an avatar as he was, a fully self-realized master from birth, um, from before he was born, born free. Jesus called it born without sin. But it, it's the meaning without karma, without any, any compelling egoic reason of his own to be born. Buddha could have taught anything he wanted to. But he had a divine mission. The masters come for a particular purpose. And his pur- purpose was to correct this overpassive attitude about allowing God to do everything. So because Buddha never emphasized God or the role of God specifically in his teaching, the aberration that has set in with Buddhism is to be almost agnostic or even atheistic in its orientation. And it doesn't have that heartfelt devotion to God in the same spirit that the Hindus have. And as a result, there's this element that's left out if we're really going to talk about the religion of, of India. However, Hinduism is so inaccessible to Westerners. And in fact, is inaccessible, Swami writes, even to many Indians, who may enjoy all of this complexity of gods and goddesses and uh, and fables and stories and Krishna's life, and then Shiva did this. And it's amazing to me how deeply steeped um, the Indian people are. We were so um, amused once by an Indian friend of ours who was about as Western a person as any Indian that I know. Totally Westernized in the way he functioned in the world and Indian in his culture, but very, very um, linear also in his thinking. But when some particular subject came up, he started illustrating it by talking about something that had happened to Brahma and Vishnu together and and then he talked about the offspring of one or another, and what they, what happened, and what they did. And he presented it so, um, just in such a simple way, as if self evidently everyone understands, you know, all these gods and how they live and what their lives mean and so on, as if it was just as natural a part of what he was doing as using his cell phone. <laughs> and it it just made me appreciate how how much richness there is in this, if we can pick it up from the right end. But as Swamiji also writes, as he says, Hinduism is a very, very old tree. And it really does need to be pruned. Because uh, between the beginning inspirations and all the things that the storytellers do because it gets a good laugh, <laughs> a lot happens to the purity of the thought. And so what Swamiji is wanting to to show with this book is on on many levels, but the the main thing he wants to give back to us, in in a very parallel sense to what he did very recently when he wrote the Revelations of Christ, and he was trying to take the fundamental teachings of Jesus and reconcile them with the modern uh, findings of science and the modern way the world works. Because so many people, in an attempt to maintain the purity of Jesus' teaching, somehow have separated it out, as if science is separate from religion. And many sincere Christians are sort of caught because that some of the narrower interpretations of Jesus' teachings, which really come from centuries ago, seem to contradict the findings of science. And so an intelligent uh, Westerner of this time and place often finds themselves, when trying to understand the teachings of Jesus, in a contradiction between his secular education and his religious beliefs. And Swamiji was trying to show how, no, they can really be reconciled in a beautiful way. Of course, that's a different book. But the same difficulty exists in Hinduism for people who are now, because India and America, India and the West are coming so close together, this is India's rising time, that there is this desire among Indians to take their place in the modern world, naturally. And it's quite appropriate that that should happen. And there's a deeply held, as I was talking ab- about my friend, this deeply held respect and appreciation for the whole cultural underpinning. But some of it seems so quaint and, and so um, irreconcilable with the sort of sleek, modern, um, simple way ways of the West that even born and raised Hindus who, ha- who love their culture do not understand how to bring it into this age. And so Swamiji wrote this book also for India so that modern Indians can look with new eyes upon their own culture and have the right kind of understanding themselves and the right kind of pride in it. And, and from our side, because we're India-inspired, because our gurus came from India, and because a great many of us have what I can only call Indian samskars, which is a, a, a feeling, many of us, a feeling of at-homeness with that culture, and at-homeness with many of these symbols. They feel much more natural to me than most Western things. And, uh, but still, we weren't raised in them, And and we often have no idea what we're really uh, appreciating. And it's important, and this is where it becomes relevant for all of us who are following this path, it's important for us um, to not just be sentimental about these things, whether that sentimentality is uh, out of uh, appreciation for the origin of our guru's teaching or sentimental about our own past lives. You know, there's a kind of... uh, uh, reality on the spiritual path that we have to work with where certain things hold us because they have a pleasing familiarity to them. And it it may be that, for example, if you were raised in the Catholic Church and maybe you're part of this teaching now, you may still have a, a sentimental appreciation of the mass. And even though, on one hand, we don't discourage people from following whatever religion they feel inclined to, interestingly, Swamiji has also cautioned those of us who are serious about being disciples of master not to just follow sentiment and sort of go back what you, to what you might call the familial warmth of wherever we came from and, and sink back into a subconscious habit. And so it is with those of us who have strong Indian samskars. having an... Uh, Samskaras, for those of you who aren't exactly familiar with that word, means karmic impressions. And if you have karmic impressions in a certain way, there's kind of a, uh, it's a psalm scar for you. It's something you can fall into naturally. You know, um, some of us have karmic, imp- well, I'm speaking of past lives in India, but you can, you might, for example, not be an, a painter in this lifetime, but you have kind of a, a feeling for what it is to paint or to sing or to write poetry. Even if you may not even do very much of it, it's a psalm scar for you. And so... Um, It would help us in our relationship, because this is the point, you see. Master came over to America from India, but truthfully he brought very little of the Indian culture with him, except in his entire persona. But he did not in any way, and it was a notable aspect of his mission, that even though he himself was from India, he made no effort to Indianize uh, Americans. And he talked instead about spiritualizing our own culture. And he brought just a few of the chants. And mostly he redid them a little bit. um, Spirit and nature dancing together. Radha, Krishna, like that. I don't know if he did any Shiva chants. He did a few mantras. But he, he really didn't bring very much of Hinduism at all with him. Except in its essential nature. And that's what this book is about is... Um, an essential view of religion in general. And in fact, once when we'd been to India, we came back with a lot of enthusiasm for a lot of the Hindu things. And we asked Swamiji about it. And Swamiji answered. He said, Master was a yogi, Paramahansa Yogananda. He was a yogi. He was not a Hindu. He was a yogi, which has meant he he was a scientific, he practiced a scientific approach to religion. A yogi is one who adopts a specific practice for the purpose of realizing God. And that stands outside of all religions. Because one of the points that Swamiji makes in these early chapters is he talks about how every religion ends up with two realities. And one is the way of awakening, the inner inner transformation of consciousness that the practices bring. And the other is the outer way of belief, for example, You know, in the Indian tradition, you have all the pujas, which are the worship ceremonies and all these rituals, and the priests do the rituals, and the women do the pujas at home, and they have a little puja room, and they'll have little pictures of the family deities, little statues. A woman of the house will go into the puja room and she'll do a ritual to bless the family, to bless the household and she'll anoint herself and she'll anoint all the members of the family and she'll sometimes put patterns in the doorway. I mean, all of these different things that they'll do, I was going to say religiously, to Several. The, the true devotee of Jesus in that experience of taking communion, it becomes a real inner reality when, that, when the priest holds up that communion wafer and you take that inside of you, it's the body of Christ. You're accepting Jesus into your very self. Padre Pio, who was a, a great saint who lived in the, uh, he died in about 1980-something, I think, and he had, bore the marks of Christ upon his body. He was a very great soul. He was a master, Swamiji said. he It used to take him three hours to do the mass because he would just get started and he was When he would go into the, the the symbolic part of that mass, holding up the wafer, every part of it, he would actually experience it every time he did it. And he just simply couldn't go through it in the same sort of mechanical way that other people would do because he would get lost in these mystic states. And And people used to line up early in the morning and then rush in, fighting for the front rows to be present for his masses because... It it trans it it transcended from the outer way of belief, which is here's the wafer and this is the body of Christ, and most of the priests are holding up the wafer and they're telling you it's the body of Christ, into the inner way of awakening, where when Padre Pio would hold it, he would know what he was seeing. He would he would see Jesus present there, and everyone else would have that experience. Now, the way Swamiji introduces you know, this this book, is he starts out with a, a wonderful chapter trying to explain to us what revelation is. And revelation is the key to understanding all um, religions afterwards. Because th- what makes the foundation for all spiritual experience is, is somebody's deep and profound revelation. And a revelation as... Uh, Swami explains it, is not the sort of gradual coming to understanding something. It's just the actual, in the moment, total perception of that truth. Now, when Jesus lived, Jesus knew the reality. He was one with the Father. He knew himself to be one with the infinite. He knew what the Father was. He knew it was the power of spirit beyond creation. And when he... um, expressed those things he was he had had the experience, and then he was trying in some way to convey through the power of words or by the power more more effectively, by the direct transfer of consciousness, what he actually knew to be true. Now, as we're going to progress through this, um, Hinduism, because it's been it because it's thousands and thousands of years old, and because of the fundamental premise of it, which is uh, Hinduism is the one teaching that understands the universality of revelation and the recurring nature of revelation. And Hinduism has made no effort to regulate revelation. It simply recognizes it whenever it occurs and realizes that that which is false, which is only masquerading as revelation... Will not have the power of true revelation, and then will just die off of its own. And that gradually, as time passes, that which is really true will rise to the surface and endure. In the West, we had Jesus, who had this direct revelation because of his consciousness, and then we've had centuries and centuries of people defining, protecting, explaining—you um, know, saying yes, saying no to all the different possibilities all based not on a new revelation of their own, except in the case of the saints when they occur, but on a reasoned approach to how best to protect that revelation. There's a fascinating story that I've shared with you. It's it's written by a man named John Tetner, I think his name is. I've tried to remember his last name. It was a book, a small book, called I Was a Monk. And uh, John uh, became a... religious, a Catholic religious, in his early teens. It was all he ever wanted to do. He grew up somewhere in the Midwest. He was just a sort of a simple, wholesome American guy. He always wanted to be a priest. He became, he entered a religious order in his late teens. He became a priest. He was uh, highly intelligent, very dedicated. The church um, saw his talent and sent him for higher and higher theological education. He served, um, you know, as a pastor and then he was eventually transferred to the Vatican. He became very high up in the Catholic hierarchy. He spent 25 years this way, very, very happy as a, in his path as a Catholic religious. And then, because he was so dedicated to the work he was doing, he uh, became exhausted. And, it, and his uh, order put him on a furlough and sent him to Switzerland um, to a spa where he could regenerate and ordered him to do no work at all. And even, in fact, not even to follow his his daily religious practices, but just to rest his exhausted body. So he found himself, for the first time in his life, because he'd grown up, I think, in a, on a farm and had always worked hard, ordered, under obedience, to do nothing. So he sat, day after day, as he put it on the uh, balcony of some beautiful place in switzerland looking out over god's gorgeous creation and did absolutely nothing which he'd never done and over time as he was there over weeks or even months as it were he gradually centered in onto a deeper and deeper state of peace and then one day he had a revelation and he had a revelation he he looked out over that beautiful valley And he had a direct revelation about the nature of God and a direct revelation about what Jesus... He he shared in the revelation of Jesus. Let's put it this way. Swamiji says one of the um, measures of true spiritual revelation is that it's consistent with all the revelations that have come before. And so John had a revelation. And when he had that revelation and understood... Uh, who, what God really is. And his revelation, as he explained it, was like Master's revelation, like the s- study of self-realization, the the knowingness within ourselves that we are one, we are now and always have been one with the Infinite Spirit. And in that revelation, he realized that the entire Catholic Church really didn't know what it was talking about, basically. Because he saw what Jesus had seen and he could see that the theology didn't have any relationship to the actual revelation. And suddenly, to his absolute dismay, he felt it, he, it, in integrity he could no longer continue. As a Catholic, as a religious, as a priest, all, everything that he'd built his life on, that he loved, it had all been contradicted because he saw it was just religion. And that religion was not the same as revelation. So he was forced to resign much to his dismay and the utter dismay of all the people who came and tried to persuade him not to. And he said himself later, he said, he wrote in his book, he said, because I was so well educated in the Catholic teaching, he said, most Catholics are not as well educated as I was. (laughs) He said, I knew what Catholic Catholic theology actually is. And so I could see the contradiction. He said he could also see um, what they had been trying to do with the theology but how far short it fell of the true revelation. And then he went on, he he left the Catholic order, he eventually married, he settled in Los Angeles, he became an actor. And he acted the part of priests and saints in all the movies. And I'm fairly certain he was the mystical Lama in the movie Lost Horizons. And he was a contemporary of Master and a good friend of Amalita Galacucci. And he has in his book one sentence, Spirit is center everywhere, circumference nowhere, which is of course a direct quote from Master. So even though he never mentions it, you feel that that revelation led him to Master. Now, what um, Swamiji is, is, is talking about when he wants us to understand what revelation is, is that there is always this difficulty because not everyone has the state of consciousness that will draw to us a true revelation. Although all of us, almost everyone, at one time or another, has some experience, often we call it intuition or a hunch or a premonition, where something is simply known by us and there's no context for knowing it. And, and that on its own level, it might just be that somebody's going to come to visit or who's on the telephone or what I ought to do with my life that I ought to go to medical school, that I need to be a lawyer, whatever it might be, I, my friend Nidruva, who went to uh, uh, Harvard Law School, she just knew at one moment that she was supposed to be a lawyer, and she ended up for more than a decade working for Ananda as a lawyer in that very difficult period when we were being sued and her her experience as a lawyer was absolutely critical to our being able to succeed against enormous obstacles. And that was, you know, she was born for that. Even her legal training, which uh, she's a black woman, and when she came out of school, um, Martin Luther King was very active, and she went right into the civil rights legislation uh, work as a lawyer, which, as she said, was very creative law. Because at that time, the lawyers who were working for him were trying to find existing laws that could be applied in ways that were never intended that could support the rights of the oppressed minority. And she actually worked on some cases, I can't remember exactly, but had to do with real estate laws, where they managed to use, they managed to turn some laws in ways that were never thought. And so it was a creative form of law, which is what was not required when our problems <laughs> came up. Okay, but having said all that, I mean, that's an, an interesting example. Shanti, who's a in our community, describes her feeling that she was supposed to go to medical school just like that. She just knew, all of a sudden, at one moment, that she was supposed to go to medical school and just, that was it, you know? Now, the the highest form of revelation, of course, is the revelation about the nature of the universe. And when uh, a soul has that direct revelation, as Swamiji says, it's the nature of joy to want to share itself which is how we always feel, isn't it? If you find something, if you go to a movie that you really like, don't you want to tell people about it? If you find a restaurant where the food is really good, isn't the first thing you say, we went out last night and you really have to try this? As soon as we feel enthusiasm, we have this desire to share it. Well, imagine when we understand the nature of the universe and where happiness comes from, there's a, a natural desire to want to share it. But of course, how are we going to communicate that which did not come to us in mental concepts or even in words. Swamiji uses the example of Einstein, whose theories, you know, made him the most famous scientist in, in the world. And Einstein understood his theory of relativity in a flash. It wasn't that he reasoned his way to it. It was that he perceived it. He had a revelation. He perceived that that was the nature of reality. And then he says, he spent ten years trying to translate it into something that somebody else could understand, who, who, who would be able to reason their way to the point where they could see what he had experienced. But he went from the revelation the other way. Now, this is what Swamiji is describing to us is, is the foundation stone of all the thousands of years of, of continually renewed history of what is called Hinduism, has been this culture that respects revelation and recognizes that, well, as a Christian said to me once who was trying to explain to me that, that she was a more broad-minded Christian, she, she was totally devoted to Jesus as her personal savior, but she said she felt that revelation did not begin or end with Jesus Christ, which I thought was actually a very apt way to put it. Because it doesn't in any way diminish the revelation presented through Jesus, but it also allows for the fact that revelation is something that is available for anyone who is able to perceive it. And that's the fundamental premise of Hinduism. The inner way of awakening, which is different than all of the ritual side of it, the inner way of awakening says that all of us have this capacity to awaken to this divine reality. And from time to time, over the course of centuries and thousands of years, individuals have this revelation and then have this great desire to share it. But what they have to share is something that represents that revelation. And Swami goes on to explain in these early chapters how everything that isn't a direct experience is a symbol uh, of that experience. It, it, it's a very interesting point how he talks about all of creation. He uses this example when an artist makes a painting, that artist is a symbol of that, uh, that painting is a symbol of that artist's consciousness. You know, the, the the person has a feeling about something and tries to put it across. Dana Anderson, who's been doing the paintings for a lot of the covers of Swami Kriyananda's books, her paintings, there's some images sometimes in her paintings you know, mountains or planets or sometimes figures are in the uh, angelic figures you can see. A lot of her paintings are just movements of color. But when you look at those paintings, you can sort of feel what her consciousness was. And a very uplifted consciousness it is, and a very unusually and beautiful one, at least I, I find it so. But she's just representing that consciousness through this painting. And you have this created thing that she poured herself into, and then there it stands. And when you look at it, often because they're abstract, there's no actual concept. You're not looking at a tree or a rose or something like that, most of her paintings. You're just looking at movements of energy and color, but yet there's something communicated to you about the consciousness of the one who created it. So Swamiji uses this image of a painter making a canvas to speak of the divine creator making the canvas of this whole universe, and that all of the elements of this universe are in some way symbols representing some aspect of that divine consciousness. It was an, It's an amazing way to think about it, isn't it? That everything is is speaking to us of the consciousness that's behind it. I mean, this is the beginning of the practice of the practice of the presence of God or seeing God everywhere, that everyone, everything represents that to us. This last weekend, some of you know we went up to Lake Tahoe and performed a wedding um, for, the, for a friend who's the daughter of a friend also. And they, um, they're not, they're, they're dedicated to this path, but not as explicitly as we are. And so their idea of how they wanted to um, uh, represent the divine was that we, the wedding took place in this beautiful house right at the edge of Lake Tahoe with these huge cathedral-like windows just looking right out at the water. And of course, God cooperated with the situation. It was a perfectly clear day. And so we're sitting here and we're looking out across this beautiful gray-blue expanse of water. And on the other side are the, is this, this line of mountains and they're snow-capped mountains and perfectly blue sky above it, and the whole thing just had such a moving, expansive quality. I mean, you, you couldn't help but feel uplifted, and that was essentially the altar. You know, we had a little table, and we had candles that were framing this view of God's creation outside of it. And looking at that divine painting, you couldn't help but feel that God was trying to tell us something he was telling us something about beauty about calmness about expansiveness about upliftment about impersonality about how how small we are in comparison how all you know all of those things and it was mountains and a lake you could just think of it as mountains and a lake but if you were sensitive to the reality behind it you felt all this communication of of some deeper level of understanding coming to us. And and it's it's a very fascinating way to, to realize, as Swamiji says, that everything is a symbol. Even the mother giving birth and nurturing her baby. Is we, we watch that and it it has a meaning for us. You know, we think of being nurtured, wanting to be nurtured, all of those things, but it also represents the very capacity for nurturing to exist, for selfless dedication to exist, for unconditional giving love to exist. And you see it personified in the form of the mother who takes care of her baby. And, and you see how this whole world can be to us a, a gateway. And Master writes in Whispers from Eternity, and, and he, he says, at first I... I didn't see the divine everywhere, but now there are doors everywhere is how he describes it. And then he talks about I look into a flower, I look up into a cloud, I you know, I, I look over a over at a mountaintop, I look at a babbling brook, and all of them look to me suddenly like doorways. And what we're where we're going with all of this, and Swamiji is, is talking to us here about it, is that over the course of many, many centuries, when these great saints had divine revelations, they had to try to figure out ways to tell us about them. And words, even though you know, we think of words as such a, an excellent way to communicate, are not necessarily the best. That sometimes, in Swamiji talks about how certain symbols have inherent power, even when you don't uh, even know what they mean. You know, there's, there's two kinds of symbols. They're symbols that assume meaning because you understand what the meaning is. He uses the example of a wedding ring. You know, when we in the West see this, this gold band on the third finger of the left hand of a man or woman, it represents to us uh, a, a marriage. And you can hold that up and you can think about all the ways in which it's a very apt symbol. It's simple, it's shiny, it's um, harmonious, um, it, it doesn't have edges, you know, it has all these realities to it that can be very profound. But if you're in another culture where this isn't the symbol of a wedding, it doesn't mean that at all. In India often the women put red in their in the part of their hair when they're married. And our Indian friends were just quite disturbed that all us married women would go around without the red in our hair and we would sort of point to our wedding rings and that didn't mean anything. Where are your white bangles? Where's the red in your hair? Because those were the symbols for them that would communicate wedding. But then Swamiji said there are other symbols that have an inherent meaning. And he used this as the symbol of the cross. You know, well, you know, the upward moving and the thwarting current. Or the horizontal and the vertical outreach. That just seeing that symbol, you don't have to know anything about Christianity or anything like that. I mean, the cross it was a symbol long before Jesus was crucified. Because it just simply is. It, it communicates to you exactly without your even knowing. Because it, in some way, you see, the nature of a revelation is that we discover a reality that was always there, that was always part of us. That's what John Tetner felt. He saw suddenly that the whole effort of the Catholic Church had been to create something external. Whereas the true message, message of Jesus was to experience something that was already within us. He saw that the truth was already there. It didn't take any church to create it. It was just already part of us. And so certain realities resonate with who we already are. That's why a revelation is so unmistakably true. Once you have any a revelation about anything, it's just yours. There's no, There's nothing outside you. You didn't arrive at it by any external means. So there's a lot of um, vibrations that are just simply our vibrations. When uh, interestingly the the joy symbol which we have up on our altar and this is actually a slight aberration of it that sent, set in but it's a symbol that looks very similar to that. Swami Kriyananda actually prayed to Master. He said he wanted a symbol for Ananda that was original uh, meaning that it, he didn't want to pick up something that was already there. He wanted it to be simple and he wanted to communicate a spirit of joy. And he prayed deeply and really in a superconscious revelation he saw that symbol. And it wasn't that he designed it. He saw it. And then after he saw it he said he had to draw it over and over. He said he drew it like 70 or 80 times. Just keep drawing it until he finally replicated exactly what he saw. And then he was, he was satisfied. This was it. And it became known as the joy symbol. And then afterwards, you know, there were all these explanations. The, the bottom of it represents a mountaintop, you know, the aspiration of the devotee. And then the spirit soars up in joyous arcs. Of, of, of bliss like this. And then it circles around and then it comes back down again. And then it points like an arrow back at the earth. So we soar up into realms of spirit and then the message is brought back again. Back to the earth. This is the avatar descending or the devotee sharing the bliss that it has. Simple, joyous. What's so interesting about that is I, I wear it as jewelry. A lot of us wear it as jewelry. So many times. I'll, I'll, I'll just be wearing it and people will stop Often they'll reach out for it and they'll hold it in their hand and they'll say, That's so beautiful. Just like that. Like it's so beautiful. And there's something about it that they don't have any idea that it's the symbol of my church, or that, you know, it's symbolical, you see, this is the upward soaring bird and this is the downward. It's just that the those lines communicate that consciousness because it's our experiences are deeper than language. Language is what we say afterwards. This is Einstein afterwards had to find language for what he already knew. So where we're coming to is that I, I mean, I remember myself, and I'm going to skip ahead a little bit on this one, when one of our early trips to India, we were there in in Calcutta, and the Durga Puja in Calcutta is actually the Kali Puja. just to really confuse you completely, Kali being another aspect of of Divine Mother. And Kali, which Swami deals with the image of Kali at great length here later on in this book. But Kali is a really horrific image and she has a, uh, she, she, uh, she has uh, all these arms like, the, like they always do. She has a necklace of skulls. She has wild hair. She has sort of big bloodshot eyes. Did I say she has a necklace of skulls? Yeah. And she has her tongue hanging out and she's uh, standing like a warrior with her foot on the chest of her husband. I mean, it's not like isn't it real pretty? And uh, when we were in Calcutta on one of our journeys, um, the neighborhood associations would get together and they would make a little temple outside somewhere in their neighborhood and they would, all, they would get some artists to make a statue of Kali and they would decorate it. and Then they would have their um, little worship services around it. So when we were either walking or going through this time we were walking through the, uh, certain neighborhoods in Calcutta. Every few blocks, you would run into another one of these collies, and, the, and they would they would compete with each other to make her more and more horrific. This long black hair, and I was uh, in a crowd of people, and I was my attention was elsewhere, and somehow I was gradually being pushed, and without realizing it, and. All of a sudden I turned around and I was about that far away from one of these colleagues and she had her, you know, long black hair and her tongue and she was just, I was just looking at her right like this. And I had one of those moments that you have in India where you think, what am I doing in this crazy country? <laughs> Which Westerners always have those moments. And, uh, and I sort of looked at this and I, this was like the tenth one I'd seen that day. And I, I said to Divine Mother inside, like, what is this? You know, wh- what is trying to be presented here? And then, the sort of like the statue communicated with me. And what she has is, she ha- one hand she holds the sword like this. She's going to chop off your head. This is all the skull she's wearing. And the other hand she has out in blessing like this. And I this just sudden, I'm not going to tell you more because it's later on in the classes. But I had this sudden feeling that life is a lot like that, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, just just that much. You know, here's God on one hand is holding a sword over your head and on the other is blessing you at the same time. And it it just occurred to me, suddenly, this was somebody's revelation. You know, somebody saw this sort of complex interplay of all the different ways in which the divine acts in the world. Now, of course, as Swamiji says, you know, it plays well to make her more and more wild-looking. And so over time, certain aspects get emphasized. But this was somebody's revelation. Somebody actually saw how the Divine Mother interacts in this world and felt all those tremendously contradicting energies and then put it together in an image. So that we, looking at that image, could use our own uh, consciousness to penetrate through it and feel the consciousness of the one who created it for us. You see, isn't that interesting? And so what Swamiji is trying to communicate to us sort of in the beginning of this book is, first of all, what we're working with is what we're trying to get back to is the truth that's beyond all these symbols. And yet, the only way we have of communicating with each other is through these symbols. And so it becomes then important to understand sort of what they represent and even what a symbol is and then how properly to relate to it. And the reason for that is because underneath all of this what we're trying to get to is not the outer form of belief but the potential for awakening that is the intention behind it all. Okay? So let's take a little bit of a break and then we'll go on from there. Before I go on with any more chattering... I would like to ask if we have any questions on anything that I've talked about so far or anything you might have read in this first part of the book. You might like to ask. <laughs> yes, Jeffrey, do you want to pick up the microphone? Thank you. The question is, um, so there, there wasn't a Kali. Say again? The, there, you, these are all visions. I mean, the Hindu, the Hindu gods Oh, Were they it, ever embodied? You know, right. That's a very good question. Let me think about that, about that. See, what stops me for a minute is that I've heard uh, Swamiji say that the role of Shiva, for example, is, is, a, is a position that, that can be held by different souls. As he said, like the King of England there's a, there may always be a King of England, but it's not always the same soul who plays the part of the King of England, but the King of England remains. And so Master, I think it was, or, or certainly Swamiji asserted this, it, in that, um, now how would that all come together? It would be difficult for me to see how it comes together. The divine, I'm, I'm guessing here a little bit, but the divine force would personify itself in a symbol of like the form of Shiva, if the um, master who perceived that reality brought forth that symbol and then a great deal of devotion was focused on that symbol, then that symbol could become an, uh, uh, an astral or a causal reality, a subtle world reality. And the... So because the gods do appear. I mean, the devotion to Shiva can make the statue of Shiva living and there'll be a living Shiva that you'll experience or a living Ganesha or... or Ramakrishna. Uh, with. Yeah, Ramakrishna saw them as alive. Now, Krishna was an avatar. And Ramakrishna... Ramakrishna was a, a contemporary person who lived in the 1800s who was a great master. And he um, worshipped God in many different forms and realized God in all those different forms. And he worshiped Mother Kali, and Mother Kali came alive for him, right? So what is actually coming alive? Because Mother Kali was not an avatar like Krishna. She was not a human consciousness that evolved into being Kali. She was not an avatar that descended. She is a a divine manifestation I'm completely, I'm, I can't go farther. No, I, I, is that I, good enough? I'll give you my two cents. I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, that they do come into being. You can have visions of them and they're quite real. Well Master, I mean Ramakrishna is a perfect example because Ramakrishna worshipped the statue Kali and it was a living reality for him. It was not a statue. She was, she was Mother Kali and she was Divine Mother personified for him. Uh, Julia, could you repeat that question? This, the, the reason for doing that oh. is because a lot of people listen to the recording of this. And so if you repeat the question to the microphone, then it goes on the recording. So the, the question was well, I can say it for you wasn't is that implied in the word murti that the form can come alive? Swamiji says at the beginning of this book, he uses Sanskrit words where he needs to, but he avoids them as much as possible. But he said the word murti, M U R T I, is a word, he uses the word image or idol um, in English, but it's not quite the same. Murti has um, implications, and I think one of the implications is that it's a a living representation, can be, that there's a living spirit behind it. Um, It would be beyond me to really sort of express it more, than that. So I'm, I quote from what I know. And that interesting fact that Swami said that different, different um, highly evolved souls will play the role of Shiva or of Kali for a while. Because these, these forces come through instruments. Because also in the life of Ramakrishna, who practiced all of these different teachings, eventually the, a guru came to him named Totapuri, who was a worshipper of God beyond form. And his job was to take Ramakrishna beyond Kali. And it was very difficult for Ramakrishna to, to go beyond the form of God as Divine Mother Kali and Totapuri forced him to take a sword and cut Kali in half you know, to, to completely, to go beyond that manifestation into the complete formless reality of God because the form of God had coalesced into the uh, image of Kali, but there was a power behind Kali that Ramakrishna needed to reach in order to fulfill the what you have to call the divine lila of his incarnation, because in truth he was descended with that state of consciousness, but because he had incarnated in a human form and had to act out the drama of being a devotee, he had to live through that reality. So that would also tell you that the embodiment of Kali, as a living being, could be a a high causal vibration, but nonetheless it still had to be dissolved to go into the infinite. So... And so you can't really um, mess around with these things. There's real power there. Um, Friends of mine... uh, uh, We have a friend in India who has a very large home, and on it there are two small Shiva temples. And he once said to us, have you ever wondered how a poor man like me ever got possession of such an expensive property as this? And it really hadn't, we hadn't thought about it, but he explained to us that a a, a family bought that property and it had the Shiva temples already on there and they hired some Brahmins to carry out the proper worship of Shiva in those temples. They were Shiva lingams. Which is the, which we'll just talk about later, which is the kind of a a pillar representing Shiva. And um, that family, after they bought that property and installed the Brahmins to take care of it for them, after a time the family started experiencing a great deal of bad luck. You know, different calamities kept uh, befalling the family. And finally, in despair, they consulted some astrologer or some wise person. And they lived at a distance from Varanasi, where this property was, and they, they, they traced their calamities to a dissonance created at, at that property. And they went back and discovered that the Brahmins had been taking their money but had not been carrying out the proper worship, and it, in fact had allowed the temples to fall into, into disrepair, and they were being desecrated by monkeys and wild dogs, and... They said, you know, you can't just take on uh, something like this without also putting out the proper energy. And the, the family felt that they were in no position to do so. And they needed to divest themselves of the property. So they looked around the city of Varanasi for a righteous Brahmin who would take on the property. And the, our friend's father. And then, it uh, was a Maharaj of some sort, he went to his father and he said... You know, will, will you properly take care of this property if I give it to you? So then it was given to the family. And then the family had this valuable property because they had the righteousness to take care. And as soon as they did that, the karma of the Maharaja's family also shifted. You know, so there, there's a, a very funny line that we're walking here. And we have to be very careful um, not to mock that which we don't understand. I had a very strange experience Um, In Vienna, uh, we were visiting in in Vienna just on a tourist trip, David and um, I, and we wanted to hear the Vienna Boys' Choir. And so you had two ways of hearing the Vienna Boys' Choir. You could either buy an expensive ticket and go to their concerts, or you could go to this certain Catholic church where where the Boys' Choir sang for the Mass. So, um, naturally, and that was free, of course, so naturally we opted to go to the mass. And uh, this poor priest, I felt so badly for him, because he was really actually trying to conduct a Catholic mass, and most of his audience was tourists who were just getting a free ticket to the Vienna Boys Choir. So he was always in this struggle with the, um, the people there. And there was this couple, they were Australian, just as it happened, although Australians can be cheeky, so maybe it wasn't just an accident. And uh, they had no respect whatsoever for uh, what was going on in that church. They had really come just to hear the music. And they were actually um, play-acting in mockery the giving of the communion wafer. You know, just sort of teasing with each other with a piece of candy or something like that. It was um, terrifying to me, is the only way I can think of it. Because I, you know... If you're sensitive, you feel energies, you feel... The, and these people just were making fun of this thing, but this is a holy symbol. And I, I wanted... I've often thought about that couple, and I've often wondered what, what happened to them. Because I felt like they were blaspheming, you know. And in the Bible it speaks of that, about how really um, dangerous that is. And I could sense it. I could sense that in their energy, it, it, somehow it wasn't innocent. It was, it, was, it was dark. And they were just playing. And I so wanted to just go up and grab them and say, you just don't know what you're doing. Please don't do this. And I, 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 that story about the Shiva temples, which you, it's just so easy to dismiss it, but this poor family ended up with this very expensive property because the Maharaja knew that he had to um, expiate what he had, what he had caused there. Do we have any other questions? Did I ask you if there were more? Um, Swamiji then also start, starts talking in this last chapter, chapter number four. And he starts talking about the, um, the fact um, that a great deal of what we presently see in the world today, what he's really, he begins to, he begins to introduce the subject which he's going to talk about more in later chapters. About this idea that on this planet, we have had higher and lower um, uh, higher and lower vibrations of civilization, that that what we're looking at, a lot of what we look at in the world today, we, we phrase it differently, that that the evolution of society and of consciousness has not been linear on planet Earth. I mean, this is a subject for many of you that I, we won't be introducing for the first time, but Swami in this book is introducing it to audiences who may have never considered it before. I mean, this basic subject that he's talking about is what Yogananda talks about in Autobiography of a Yogi, and Sri Yukteswar talks about in The Holy Science, where he talks about the yugas, which is there is this tradition in India and in many other cultures where we, we talk about higher and lower ages, whether they call them the gold golden age, the silver age, the bronze age, the copper age, or... Um, whatever words we use, we describe a progression of ever-expanding consciousness in more refined civilization, which reaches a peak, and then that consciousness also begins to descend again. Now, as Swami will explain a little bit later, so I don't want to give the whole story about it, but the, the point is that much of what we... Uh, the, the, the cycle of time that we've been living through on this planet is that, until recently, it was a descending age. And at 500 A.D. it reached the nadir and then began to ascend again. And in the year 1900 it turned over from a a darker age of matter into a higher age of energy. Now, what that means is that when we're in the declining cycle, which much of our recorded history is really about that declining cycle, what you will have is you will have remnants of higher ages that are still hanging around that people don't quite understand anymore. And what what Swamiji is coming to, what what we're going to go through as we get farther into this book, is that a great many things that seem inexplicable to us now come from a time when there was a shared understanding on a much higher level. Um, And that... What, what we're working our way back toward because we're rising up on the other side is back again into a more and more subtle understanding. Swamiji makes the reference in here which is very interesting. And Biasa, who's done a lot of study of this cycle of the yugas. And he, Swamiji comments about how we tend to think from our point of view that the advent of written language was a sign of great advancement. You know, as soon as you could write things down and then you could communicate. And Vyasa has this wonderful quote from somewhere in the descending yugas when people began to write things down and one of the great leaders of that time asked the simple question, but if we write everything down, what will become of our capacity to remember? In other words... What Swami's also saying is that the greatest transference of understanding is not the transference where you write it down and then somebody reads it. This is sort of what an academic, how things happen in the academic world. He, somebody talks to you or somebody writes it in a book. You read it in a book. You try to understand it. You try to re-articulate it. The two of you argue about what the book might mean. Somebody else writes another book to describe what these two books mean. But there's a completely other way of understanding which is the understanding of a direct transference of thought and ideas from one person to another. Now this is the power that um, a great saint, the effect of a great saint, is that there is a direct transference of consciousness. This is the whole um, experience of trying to be in tune with a master and what it really means to be a disciple. You know, there are great spiritual masters who don't even talk who keep absolute silence as a spiritual practice. Mon is the word. They'll take a vow. They're they're, they're yogis who have taken a vow, and they never speak. And yet still, they can be the guide for, you know, at least some. Sometimes, in, in some cases, many hundreds of people. And they never explain anything, because all of their teaching happens by a direct transference of consciousness, a vibration of the essence of what the words are trying to represent. If a master articulates to you perfectly that God is love and that unconditional bliss is our own nature, we can just find those words just thrillingly beautiful. But what, what the words really only have power, I mean the words have power to the extent to which the awareness of that awakens within us. And that's why I I was in one of the local churches recently. They had a beautiful Christmas display. And uh, part of what they were doing, they were also having a church service. And because they were having it, I just stayed there for a few minutes. And this man picks up this book. And he I don't know what the words were, but the words were like this. And then so... After that, God so loved the world that everyone was uplifted. Like that. You know, all the words were there. There was nothing at all wrong with what he said. But, but the, it was just words. There was no transference of the consciousness of what those words symbolized. You see? Now... What, what Swami's um, explaining to us in here, you see, is in the highest ages, you don't need the symbols because there's a direct transference of energy. Here's a really intriguing thing. This is way in the, sort of out in the who can say what's true or not true. There's the, this man, he's passed away now. His name was Marcel Vogel. And he was a very um, far out, far out thinker and a very far out guy. I believe he, he spent his whole career, I think IBM paid him just to think. I think he actually had a job where he worked for that company and all he did was think. And they owned whatever he thought of. <laughs> but he also had very far out visions of things. And there's a, somewhere, there's, a, 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 there's several actually, carved crystal skulls. Skulls that are carved out of crystal rock and they've been uncovered, and there's been sort of a question as to what they're for. And Marcel Vogel had one of these in his hands. He was able to hold one and, you know, get the vibe from it. And he had this vision um, that he, he he saw this picture of this in some temple in some higher age. True or otherwise, it's an interesting story. He said he, he had this vision of a... He probably said it was an Atlantis, and he described the whole temple to us. And this... Old man came into the temple and he held the skull and he transferred all of his understanding and knowledge into the skull. And then a young person came, a child, and the child held the skull and the wisdom and knowledge of the old man was, was uh, translated into his consciousness. I mean, uh, who knows? But it was a fascinating um, possibility, even. You know, and, and Marcel Vogel worked, a lot of the uh, technology that we work with today is you know, just holding information in very unusual ways. And so part of what Marcel was working with is how information can be stored in a crystal. And, uh, but what we're saying is, the symbols are not always needed. Sometimes the revelations can be transferred directly. And as I was starting to say, the the way and the power of a master, there's a saying in India that says, one moment in the company of a saint can be your raft over the ocean of delusion. Now how would that be possible? How would it be possible in one moment for, for a person to receive enough understanding that they would have the willpower and the understanding to overcome the forces of delusion? Well, there would have to be some direct transference of consciousness in order to make that possible. And also what Swamiji is setting up the stage for is that sometimes non-verbal or non-linear or not immediately, not entirely reasonable images actually can transfer consciousness more effectively than ways that allow us to become too specific in the way that we think through it. Swamiji said that sometimes Master would say things that were quite unreasonable. Or he would just say something that didn't make a lot of sense just to shock us, shock you. He said, out of your sort of little rut of reason. And then when you were shocked out of that rut, then he was able to slip something in. Whereas if, you're, if we're holding this form all the time where we're always figuring things out and understanding it, and Master wants us to move it into another dimension, he has to jar us out of that rut. Swamiji also observed that when Master would speak, often... When he would tell he would tell jokes, and he would get everyone laughing. And then, when everyone was relaxed and laughing, then he would slip in some very important point. Because again, sort of the we moved off of the uh, uh, all of that rigid rigidity of thinking, allowing something more subtle to come into our reality. So, from when I first started um, on the spiritual path. I mean, when I was 18 years old and 19 years old, um, I had so much rigidity about everything. What could be allowed, what could be understood, how things could be said. And one of the very interesting early experiences I had, which God gave me before even I met Swami, I used to um, go to the temple of the Ramakrishna order. I was very devoted. That was my introduction to the spiritual path was through Swami Vivekananda and Paramhansa Ramakrishna, and uh, they have a organization in America. And I went to the temple in the Hollywood Hills, Southern California, and this Indian Swami came, I think this was the first saint that I ever met, this Indian Swami came to speak. And I was very rational, and, and Vivekananda is very in, in, intelligent in his explanation of the teachings, and I really liked Vivekananda's writing because it was very... Um, it it, it resonated with that side of me. It it was deeper than that, but he expressed himself in an intellectual way and I liked it. So I'm sitting in this little church and this Swami is speaking. And he has a slightly thick accent from whatever part of India he came from. So he was a little bit hard to understand, but even as I began to tune into what he was saying, I became conscious of the fact, it wasn't that he was talking gibberish, that wouldn't be true, or speaking in tongues he was he was you know speaking plain english and making sense but not a great deal of sense he wasn't speaking in any kind of cohesive organized presentation in and many of the other swamis were more intellectual and they would give they would give some sort of a talk this man was just talking a little about this and a little about that and just sort of going on and on and i my first inclination was was to be dismayed and displeased by the lack of intellectual cohesion. But I became simultaneously aware that the more he talked, the more and more joyful I began to feel. And I later, much later, when I've seen Swamiji talk many times, I remember one time, I think it was actually right in this temple, when Swami Kriyananda was talking it was, there was this extraordinary outpouring of energy from him. And it was, it it was almost as as if I could see it. I couldn't, but it was almost as if I could see it. And I would feel like the energy would come out of his mouth, and when the energy got to about here, he would put words on it. (laughs) And it was like the energy was first, the consciousness was first, and then he would put some words on it so that we would have, we would have a way Well, it was a symbol. So we'd have something to hold on to in order to receive the consciousness. And Swami was being very... He wasn't like this this Indian Swami. Swami was being much more uh, coherent in what he was saying. But I was conscious of the fact that the words were so not what he was actually offering us. They were a symbol of what he was offering. You see? And when I was sitting there all these years ago when I was 18, what was that, 68, 69, something like that. And I felt this joy coming into me. And it was the first time, I I think it was the first time I ever understood consciousness. I I suddenly saw that what represents consciousness, which is words, and consciousness are two very different things. And I, I remember afterwards standing in the line, shaking that Swami's hand, and I could still see him. You know, all these years ago, I have no idea even who he was. I can still see him because I can see his eyes. You know, they were just wide open and they were they were looking at something I couldn't see. But something had transferred directly. You know, a real deep and profound blessing had been given and all of the symbols of it didn't make any difference because he was giving it to us directly. You know, it's a, it's a very important point on the spiritual path, lest we otherwise we... We analyze things from the wrong angle. We look at things too much from um, wanting the small part of it to be in order and not recognizing that this is the tiniest point of the the great flow of energy and, and this is only trying to represent it. And it doesn't really matter that much as long as the flow is in there. And once we begin to think like that too, this is what I was saying at the very beginning and this is the end of what I'll say. Everything in this universe is just representing something more profound. Absolutely everything. Even our, as Swami said, even our physical body just is a representation of our individual consciousness. There's nothing in creation that means what it appears to mean. Isn't that a fascinating and wonderful thought? Just play with that all week. See how much fun it is and how it makes everything so much more interesting. Everything is a symbol for the consciousness behind it. All right. That'll be it for tonight. Bless you. All right. So for next week, you should read through chapter, what did I say? Read through chapter seven.